Well, I doubt that there's anyone here this morning who has not somewhere in your life faced that daunting moment when what God wants is not what you want. And maybe you've even taken it to the next level and tried to save yourself from God's call in your life by running. Maybe you're running today, right now. And the reason is because you've either become disappointed with God or maybe you're angry at God. The story of Jonah answers a number of questions. Can you outrun God? Have you exhausted God's grace? Does he still care about you? Do your mistakes limit God? Will he give you another chance and another chance and maybe even another chance? Maybe these are questions that you are facing yourself. Maybe they're camped in your life. Maybe, maybe there's some unresolved issues in your past. One thing for certain, Jonah, is more than a fish story. It confirms our fears, really, that, that maybe if we get too close to God, he'll make our life uncomfortable. That God is going to ask us to do something that we don't want to do. Take us into an assignment or a situation that we really don't like. See, Jonah was a prophet. A prophet had a job, a prophet had a calling, and that calling was to proclaim God's judgment on sin primarily. As long as Jonah was asked to do that to his own people, to proclaim that message to his own people, he seemed to be fine. It's when God stretched his assignment outside of his comfort zone. See, one of the giant problems of Jonah's life, and maybe even ours as well, is that he didn't really know the God he spoke for very well. Or as you read this story, you realize that he did know things about God and actually didn't like what he knew about God. We would never like to publicly admit that. Jonah did. We generally don't. But harbored in our hearts often are things about God that we just don't like. He also didn't seem to know himself very well. That's not surprising to any of us. So I, I, as I've studied this book many, many times, when God is calling you to an assignment or a situation, it seems to me that he is calling us to a new level of divine revelation. He takes us deeper into our understanding and awareness of who he is and a deeper understanding of ourselves. And both of those things are critically important to move forward with God. So if you have your Bibles this morning or electronic device or however you find God's word, would you turn to the book of Jonah? It's between Obadiah and Micah, if that's of any help. Or do not make the person beside you feel bad when they look at the index and find the number in their Bible. 
It won't be the same page for you as it is for me. It's 848 for me. But who knows? It might get you close. Jonah. Uh, it's an amazing story, and I'm going to read the first chapter in just a little bit, and we're going we're to touch on, on the whole story today, Lord willing. Um, but we won't be able to go into depth in every chapter. But I, I do think we can set up the whole question of our series, which is, what are God's rights? And I'm going to tell you right up front what this is about. God retains the right to be freely gracious all the time. That's what this story is about. Um, there's a a water bottle that's rolling down the aisle. <laughs> it's an unusual thing. Thank you. An animated water bottle. That's a first for me. Jonah loved the fact that he himself was the recipient of God's grace. But he liked to retain it for himself. Whenever he was benefiting from God's grace, Jonah was happy with that, and so are we. But whenever God's grace meant something that made him uncomfortable, ah, that became something different. So if your Bibles are open, Jonah, the word of the Lord, Yahweh, Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, we learned is the great I am, the covenant-keeping and making God, the, the God who has set his glory above the heavens, speaks to his prophet, just like he's speaking to you this morning. With, your, with the word of God open this morning, Yahweh, the great I am, the covenant-making God with you, the God who has set his glory above the heavens, who is majestic above all, is speaking to you, his word to you this morning. Came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Arise and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now that's Jonah's job description. That, he's, that's what he's supposed to do. That's what he was called to do. Speak for God. Judgment against sin. Nothing surprising about that. But Jonah, we're surprised with this next phrase, but Jonah arose and fled from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa. There's an important physical uh, description that takes place in this book that helps us to understand the nature of choosing to go your own way instead of following God's way. And, and the NIV doesn't bring it out as well as I, I would recommend you read this in the New American Standard or the ESV, which... Um, tries to keep careful uh, precision with the wording here because when uh, God asks them to rise and go, <clears throat> when you follow the Lord, it, his intention is to take you up and a journey up. But when Jonah decides to arise and flee, 
everything from that point forward is pictured as going down. And uh, you need to see that in the picture because it sets an emotional tone for us that's really critical for us to learn because most of us are visual learners. Most of us are hard knock learners. And this gives you the picture. If you don't understand all of the subtle nuance of all the words, you can certainly see that choosing to turn your back and run away from God is not a good direction. It doesn't take you up, it takes you down. And so you see what is happening here. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord, or the presence of the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below, gone down into the ship below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. They asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble on us? By this time, they had a pretty good idea. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship or fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? Because they knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. Now the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land but he's the God of the land too. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried to the Lord, O Yahweh, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm at this, the men greatly feared, same word that Jonah said he was engaged in, feared the Lord, feared Yahweh, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. Our Father, we in the same way as Jonah so many centuries ago are here being confronted by your word. The living God, the Yahweh, the great I am, is speaking to us this morning. This is a word for us. I pray that we might understand the gravity and nature of who is speaking to us 
and who we are and what we ought to do about it. <clears throat> I pray, O oh Lord, that you might open up our hearts. If we've been running from you, if we've been disappointed, if we're angry at you, we might be angry at you. If we don't like the way you are, Lord, today we've come to the right place to hear from you. I pray that you'd open up our minds and our willingness, move our hearts by the power of the Spirit of God, oh God, may it, this be a, a holy transaction that takes place this morning in our lives. We need you, oh God. We need to uh, honor you rightly. We need to fear who you really are. We need to see ourselves for who we are. We need to embrace the truth that we might live the truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he steps, it really is a call from God to step into his classroom. It always is. We're in God's classroom right now this morning. There are things about you and me that we need to learn. Just when we think that we're getting it, we believe we've got it all going the proof is truly in the follow-through. Not that we have some intellectual understanding of who God is, but that when he actually speaks to us, it moves us. And so he told Jonah, arise and go, do your job. Uh, your call is, uh, I've changed your assignment, your call is to go to Nineveh. And um, what God really wants to hear is the, what Isaiah would have said send me I'll go so he says arise and go do your job there's nothing unusual about this and and God states though and I suppose this unnerved Jonah as soon as he heard it to that great city of Nineveh why would God be thinking that Nineveh is a great city Jonah must have been thinking Nineveh is a horrible city. They're wicked, they're pagan idolaters. They hate us, they hate the Jews. They've brutalized us over the years, over the generations. Why in the world would God be calling Nineveh a great city? Jonah all the time is thinking, I hate the Assyrians. I hate Nineveh, I, I hate that place. You know, I, I was thinking as I read that, well, Jonah, you should be good with your assignment then because God says go and preach against the city because it has wickedness. You should, you should be happy to go in there and wail on them and tell them how horrible they are and get out of town and you, you should be happy with that. You've done that so many times around your own people. But what we discover is that Jonah doesn't want to go. He runs the other way. And we're, why, why wouldn't you want to go, Jonah? And it's not until the end of the story that we discover what God already knew at the beginning of the story because with God, the beginning and the end are the same thing. We find out that there's something about God that Jonah doesn't like. That's a little bit scary. We find out when we read verse 2 of Jonah chapter 4 that 
he says to God, um, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? So obviously he verbalized to God his reason. He says, that is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And I only want calamity for Nineveh. I don't like God the way you are. You're too soft. And you're putting all of us at risk by making the mistake of, of bringing the Assyrians to yourself. At that moment, and it happens, we decide in our hearts that we know better than God. And that takes us to a journey to start trusting in ourselves instead of in God. Jonah was disappointed with God and prepared to trust in himself instead. And so he runs to Tarshish, a place. Now, why would he run to Tarshish? Well, I, I want to share four quick points with you this morning on this text. And the first is this. There are places in our hearts that we will not face until God forces a showdown. Arise and go, Jonah. He arose and fled. Why would he go to Tarshish? Well, historically we find out that Tarshish is the, um, the farthest ship the farthest journey that he could take. It was to the extreme. It was off the map. It was Spain. Canada hadn't been invented yet. Otherwise, he would have said, I'm going to Canada. And why does he go to Tarshish? Because he knows that he's, there's no temple there. He can get away from the voice of God, or at least he thinks he can. I'm going to run away from the voice of God because I don't like the message of God. Now, we have Tarshish places. Oh, we don't admit it. We don't like to admit it, but we do. What are Tarshish places? They are places where, they're, where you don't praise, where you don't pray, where you don't listen to God. You overestimate your own capacities to run your own life. Thank you very much. And so regularly, we run to those places. We run to work. We bypass the Word of God. We run to entertainment. We run to recreation. We run all over the place. In fact, sometimes we even run away from church because we think if we run away from church, we will no longer have to listen to the message that God is delivering that's bothering us. And so we make up some lame theological excuse why I'm not at church anymore. Well, the people are hypocrites. Nobody was nice to me. They weren't friendly to me. But really, when people run away from church, they're running away from God. They're running away from His voice. And they hope they won't hear the message anymore that He keeps speaking by his grace. So we become self-sufficient and idolaters. Jonah became an, an idol worshiper of himself. 
We don't regularly want God as he is or his will as he wants it, and we get ourselves into trouble. And when you run away from God, you forfeit the opportunity to call on him for blessing. And you put the people in your life at risk. When he stepped onto that boat, he put all of those sailors at risk. Now, as we continue on, we realize that not only are there places in our hearts that we won't face until God forces a showdown, which is exactly what he's doing here, but we also find out that we may be unwilling or even unable to embrace the depths of human need until God has forced us into the deep end of life. Jonah had evidently grown up believing that he deserved God's favor. That's not surprising, and that happens to uh, people particularly who grow up in church. He grew up in the community of Israel. And as far as he was concerned, Israel deserved God's favor. The chosen people of God. We serve him, we worship him. I'm a Hebrew, he says. I'm a Hebrew. You know, when you heard him say that, you could just feel it oozing out of him. The pride of being a Hebrew. I'm a Jew, I belong to Yahweh. Yahweh's grateful for me. I'm a prophet, not only that, but I'm a prophet. I serve him. How fortunate God is. Jonah was quite happy to be the recipient of God's favor, but he hated that he was being asked to be the middleman in a grace transaction with people he hated. He didn't believe that God's grace should be extended beyond him or beyond them. Because after all, the Assyrians don't deserve forgiveness. Maybe there's somebody in your life like that who you hate. You know, when Jesus rattled the cages of all of them when he said, you know, you need to love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you. You know, it's one thing to love those people who are kind and reach out to those people who are gracious and nice. But Jesus took it another notch. And he's, God took the notch with Jonah. Go love on Nineveh. Sort of. What Jonah failed to grasp is that his graceless view of life caused him to lack compassion. And in lacking compassion, he also was unable to love God the way God deserves to be loved. You remember the time um, that's recorded for us in Luke 7 where Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's home. The Pharisee's name is Simon. And Jesus goes to this Pharisee's home and uh, in walks a sinful woman. That's how she's described. And it says there in the text that she immediately began weeping and, and, and started to wash Jesus' feet with her, with her tears and her hair. And Simon the Pharisee is thinking in his mind if Jesus is really a prophet... Because that all he thought, that's all he thought he was. If Jesus is really a prophet, he should know who this woman is. 
And then the text goes on to say, and Jesus answered Simon this way. It's like, what? Simon didn't say a word. It was in his mind. Don't you hate when God knows what you think? (laughs) Jesus says to him, Simon, I have to ask you a question. There were two guys. One guy owed 50,000 drachma and another guy owed 50 drachma. He says, the, the, guy, the guy who they owed the money to forgave the debts. He says, Simon, who do you think loves more? And Simon said, well, obviously, the guy who was forgiven most. He said, exactly. Jonah, how much do you think those Ninevites will love me? After all they've done, how despicable they've been, how wicked they've been, how idolatrous they've been, if I were to rescue them. Jonah, because you don't know how much you've been forgiven, you don't love me enough. But God forced Jonah to face the plight of pagan sailors. How are they so different than the Assyrians, Jonah? You just got in a boat with a bunch of idol worshiper, pagan worshipers. They don't love me. They don't know me. They've been mean to people. What what, what gives them, how are they any different? Well, they're different because now they have faces on them. And they come to Jonah and they start pleading with them. What's wrong with you? Where do you come from? What's your identity? What have you done that's so horrible? You've risked our lives. And there's a glimmer of hope for Jonah Because as they present their faces to him, even though they hate God and likely hated Jews, he sees their faces. And he starts to think about them as real people who need something desperate. See, often God um, forces us into a face-to-face confrontation with those who we would otherwise easily not like or care about because it's hard to hate people whose face is presented right in front of you. It's easy to hate the faceless. But what did Jonah know about their stories? What did Jonah know about the hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh who who were raised by bad leaders, who who taught them in wrong ways, who mentored them poorly, uh, who had hard luck stories? What, What did Jonah know about any of those people? What should we do? Who are you, Jonah? And why in the world, if you worship the God of the sea, would you get in a cruise ship and go to Tarshish? That's how stupid sin makes you. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. (laughs) I'm sure when Jonah said that, it must have felt like sawdust in his mouth. I fear and worship the Lord? Really what Jonah should have said is, my name is Jonah and I only care about myself my comforts, and life the way I want it to be. Beloved, you know what? You won't deny yourself until you face the facts about yourself that you have been denying. 
And so now that I know these guys, do I just let them perish? So he says in verse 12, then just pick me up and throw me into the sea. At that moment, there was a compassion transaction. Jonah made the decision to forfeit himself for the sake of his wicked, unbelieving, idol-worshipping shipmates. Progress in God's classroom. So overboard goes Jonah. They throw him overboard. And when he was on his way to the deepest of the sea was when he was closest to rescue, as we read through the text and understand. I thought to myself as I was looking at this text, why, why wouldn't God just get a different prophet? It answers the question, do we have a second or a third or a fourth or a fifth chance with God? Just how gracious is God? Get a different prophet. If Jonah doesn't want to go and, and be the the, the the, the evangelist for a, um, a, uh, a crusade in Nineveh whereby 100, over 100,000 people give their lives to God. Well, get someone else who'll do the job. God is as resolute about the journey to the task as he is toward the task itself. There are no limits to his relentless grace to reconcile people to himself. God could have gotten a different prophet. But he wanted the same prophet changed. That's how God, that's how God's grace functions and operates with us. He could bypass you. He could bypass me. But God has established a relationship with us by covenant. He doesn't want to to bypass us and get somebody different. He wants a changed us. He wants us to be transformed into the image and likeness of his son, Christ Jesus. The task is one thing, but the journey to the task matters to God. He is taking us on a journey. It's not just all about accomplishing the task. It's about building people who will understand God and know him and love him. We also learn as uh, this story goes on that disobedience doesn't halt God's purposes. Can my disobedience completely throw God's purposes into oblivion? Absolutely not. And it doesn't necessarily disqualify us. Jonah's used, but it does bring unnecessary pain. I think being thrown overboard in a storm would be very painful and very scary. I think being swallowed by a fish would be very scary. And um, Jonah describes it in Jonah 2, 8, when he says, those who cling to worthless idols, in other words, the things they want to believe more than God, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Wow, Jonah's saying good things. He's praying good things. Nothing like being in the gut of a fish to start to pray better. When hardened sailors start using church language and a punk prophet in a state of absolute rebellion is used to bring evangelism to rebels, we know that God 
is unlimited in the business of changing hearts. Salvation, he exclaims by prayer, comes from the Lord. That's the great story here. This is a story of gracious salvation. I have spent years researching the Jonah story in particular because most of the people who looked at the Jonah story were always captivated by the great fish. And uh, all of the scientists like to amass their ideas on this and, and, and all of the theologians look at this and we try to describe how we can make this story more believable by coming up with a species of fish that could actually swallow a human being and that human being could live for three days and be spewed up on the ground. And so we spend our time distracted by this fish. This fish is nothing. Okay, we're talking about the God of the sea, the God of the land, the God who set his glory above the heavens. This is not a perplexing exercise in attempting to convince ourselves that there is such a species of whale that could actually do this, and we've got to find that species to convince people that there's some probability that this story could be true. We're talking about God here. God's answer to Jonah's desperate prayer is a great fish. And the word that's used here in verse 17 is, but the Lord ordained a great fish. The Lord put his hands on a great fish and decided to make it a fully loaded, fleshy submarine that would save a prophet. With all the bells and whistles that you need, air conditioning and everything, that's what God does. He is gracious to save with all of the assets in the universe at his disposal. I'm pretty convinced that he holds the rights to manufacture a one-of-a-kind, one-off great fish that we're never going to find again. There's no species like this. God provided it for the assignment to save somebody. If he wanted to make the story more believable... God could have sent a raft that was constructed by Tom Hanks with a volleyball named Wilson riding shotgun. Wouldn't we have believed that more? Oh, of course, a raft with a volleyball on it. That would have been something in that day. It's not the fish that's so unbelievable here. It's that Jonah is saved from certain doom and forgiven and prevented from apostasy because God is so gracious. That's the story. That, that rebel, rebel sailors turn to Yahweh in the face of the worst, most pathetic evangelist ever. It's not about our great words or our four spiritual laws or how well we deliver the gospel. God is a saving God. He will take his truth and deliver it by grace. And it's that a whole wicked city of Assyrians could hear an eight-word sermon and repent. Can you imagine? I know many of you are living for the day that I'll get up here and give an eight-word sermon and sit down That'll be your favorite sermon of all. Sit down, Baker. Eight words. That's enough. That's what it says in the text. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Oh, Jonah gets another chance. Go to the great city of Nineveh. 
And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he preaches. Forty more days, he says, verse 4, and Nineveh will be overturned. And the Ninevites believed God. That's the miracle of the story, not the fish. Jonah was running from his own graceless, thin heart. And God, because he is relentlessly gracious and preserves and will reserve the right to be gracious, reaches into his life and saves him, saves sailors, saves Nineveh. It's, it's astounding. All because God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding with love. And he says to Jonah, Jonah, listen, there are more than 120,000 people, chapter 4, verse 11, who cannot tell their right hand from their left. These are ignorant dupes to wicked mentors who have taken them down the wrong pathway of life. Shouldn't I be concerned about them? Don't you love that about your God? If, if your God wasn't like that, he would have never reached down into your life. Because while we were still sinners, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. The gracious God reached into our lives. We have no right to be graceless. We have no right to reserve grace for ourselves and benefit from it ourselves, but refuse to grant the benefits to others. God retains all the rights. We can never get to the place where we believe we are entitled to grace or it ceases to be grace. We can never get to the place where we withhold grace because we don't deserve it in the first place. God insists as we begin and launch this rights of God program together, God insists on the right to be gracious. And between you and me, I am so thankful for that. I am so eternally thankful that our God is not a capricious, mean, hard God. He is a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God who relents from bringing calamity, loves to warn people before he lowers the boom that people might turn to him. All through the Old Testament, people talk about, oh, this God of judgment, this God of judgment. You know, I've been reading through the Old Testament uh, in a fresh way this, this summer, and I realized every time God presents an opportunity for people who are rebellious against him to turn to him. Every time. As Israel was being rescued out of Egypt, Egypt had every opportunity to turn to God. 
as they're wandering through the uh, wilderness and on their way to the promised land and they meet up with various nationalities, various nations, various peoples who would be uh, obstacles in their course. Every time they were given an opportunity to serve the living God, let us come through your land, uh, grant, grant us passage through your land, God will show you favor. And, and God every time gave opportunity after opportunity for people to respond to his grace. God is a gracious God. And he will reserve the right to be gracious. And he will put you in his classroom until you acknowledge and welcome that he is a gracious God and are gracious yourself. Our bent is to forfeit grace in favor of anger or replacement gods, but our gracious God renovates reluctant hearts and rescues rebellious ones because that's who he is. Father, I thank you for this picture of a God of incredible compassion and grace over against a normal, everyday prophet like us who loved the benefits of grace when it was a benefit to him, but wasn't so certain that he wanted that grace for others and wasn't so certain that he wanted to allow you to reserve the right to grant favor based on your grace. I pray, oh God, that our lives may, as they've come under the searchlight today, if we're disappointed with you, if we're angry at you because you've been gracious, because that's who you are. I pray that we may recognize that your grace, while not always our desire, is always grace, is always your favor, even when it comes packaged in ways we don't understand. Oh God, I pray that we might love you as we ought by being overwhelmed by your grace and love others compassionately the way you do. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know, as you track through that story and you come to chapter two and you hear Jonah pray, you, for a moment, are quite encouraged by the progress that's made in Jonah's life until you get to the last chapter where we leave Jonah We leave Jonah sitting on a sun-scorched rock, looking over the great city of Nineveh, angry. Imagine that. A preacher who went and preached the gospel, and over 100,000 people repented, and he's angry. He builds himself a little shed, and it shades him, and then it says God grew him a vine, and the vine grew up, and it provided him shade and then God it says provided a worm that killed the vine and also a scorching east wind hot wind so we don't know what happened to Jonah did he spend the rest of his life angry and disappointed with God maybe and there are a lot of people in that situation 
Some of them are left, have left church. Some of them still come to church. They drag themselves in, disappointed and angry at God. Here's the thing. God says to Jonah, Jonah, you didn't have anything to do with that vine that came up and shaded you. I grew that thing. And I took that thing away. Until we get to the place where we realize, and I mean really realize in our heart of hearts that we don't deserve the least of God's favor, we deserve nothing, we will never, ever celebrate the grace of God. Never. And we will spend the rest of our lives disappointed and angry with God because particularly in the age we live in of, in, of entitlement, we as God's people are not part of the entitlement thing. We are a class of people who deserve nothing and have been given everything in Christ. You got to settle that. You have to settle that. And when you settle that, then God's grace explodes in your heart and makes it easy for you to be the middleman or middlewoman in a God-grace transaction with somebody else, to be grace-filled people. When I realize I don't deserve anything, I can look at someone else and say, man, I don't look down on you or, or, or wonder what's wrong with your heart. You've had it tough. You've had it hard. I, I'm sure rotten people have built into your life all I have is compassion for you, and I realize I don't deserve anything more than you do, but God's grace is available to you too. That makes a difference. It makes a change in our lives. It will, but you have to embrace this. I don't want to stay like Jonah, pouting for the rest of my life, disappointed and angry at God. Do you? Does anybody here? Come on, give that up. Give that up and enjoy well, how God has graced you and blessed you. Our Father, thank you for taking us the start of this journey into the heart of your rights to be gracious, oh God. Wow, what an amazing thing for us. So thank you. You are a gracious, compassionate, long-suffering, awesome God who relents from sending calamity because you love to reconcile people to yourself. I trust, O oh God, that hearts have been reconciled to you even this morning, for Jesus' sake. Amen.